Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be doing interv- I'll be interviewing Chris Fidal. Based in San Antonio, Chris is a software engineer with over 10 years' experience architecting applications of all sizes. He currently works for Userscape, working on a product called HelpSpot, which we'll probably be talking about a little bit later. You can follow Chris's blog at fideliper.com, and you can read more work of his at serversforhackers.com. You can also listen to him on the Has Opinions podcast, which you can find at hasopinions.wtf, and on iTunes, uh, which he co-hosts with Daniel Espinoza, where they discuss things like remote work, DevOps, and money. And of course, you can follow him on Twitter at Fideliper. Um, Chris is the author of a couple of books on LeanPub, one of which is Implementing Laravel, Real-World Implementation of Testable and Maintainable Code, and another of which is Servers for Hackers, Server Administration for Programmers. In this interview, we're going to talk about Chris's background and career, professional interests, his book, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience using LeanPub and the other ways that he manages his little info products, well, I shouldn't say little, his info products empire. So thank you, Chris, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Sure. Happy to be here. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first found yourself getting interested in things like computers and software. Sure. Yeah, man. Origin story. (laughs) So um, I grew up in Connecticut and I didn't really do a lot of stuff with computers other than really video games until, I mean, maybe in my teens, I made some web pages and I learned HTML. Um, cause I saw my dad doing that. He was a graphic designer and graphic design moved to computers and that kind of thing. So he bought a Macintosh, you know, one of those like beige Macintoshes brought that home. And that was really my first computer. And eventually, uh, um, randomly picked up like an HTML book of his and started just like making a web page cause it seemed really neat. And HTML is kind of a nice, easy place to start from. Not that I knew that at the time, but you know, to me back then it seemed like amazing. So, uh, yeah, I started doing some HTML then, but I didn't really get into anything kind of serious computery until college. So I didn't really have this like span of childhood time that I hear a lot of people talk about where I was like learning programming and like diving into servers or anything like that. Yeah, and I saw on your LinkedIn profile that you did a bachelor's in management of information systems. And I was curious, I haven't come across that quite that formulation before. If you could talk a little bit about what that degree uh, involved. Sure, yeah. So the way I describe that is, first of all, it was in the business school of uh, of my college of UConn, where I went, um, versus the engineering school, which is where computer science would be. So this is still computer-related, right? So management of information systems. Um, but their focus which was kind of like a little old at the time, but now I think is especially old 10 years later, um, was to sort of become an IT manager at a corporation somewhere. That was like what their focus was, right? So do this course, become an IT manager at some huge insurance company, you know, in like a middle manager or something like that. That really seemed like what it was to me. Um, So it was useful in that, they were the more technical classes I took actually were useful. So like I had a database um, class and that's how I learned about relational databases and um, normalizing data inside of databases and that kind of stuff. And that is something I still use every day developing applications now, but then there's like your finance classes and I didn't pick up anything from that. And so, you know, so many of all these kind of businessy classes that were somewhere kind of interesting, some were not, and mostly not totally used really in my day to day at all. And how did you uh, become a, a an engineer then? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, so I had an internship at a big insurance company between my um, 
well, before my senior year of college, right? Yeah. So uh, in the summer, uh, right before my last year of college. And I didn't like it at all. And that really got me to this point of view where I just knew I didn't want to work for a huge corporation. So I knew after I graduated, I, sw- I wanted to look for a smaller company to work for, to work for. And I definitely had always been interested in programming and, like, and just technical stuff in general. So my dad's company, the place he worked, it was still graphic design geared, but they had a lynda.com account. And I just used that because my dad gave me the username and password. And I taught myself uh, all sorts of programming stuff. So I taught myself PHP and uh, ActionScript because I was really into Flash and and thought maybe I would even be a graphic designer as well back then, um, despite my complete lack of art skills. Uh, so that is really what I did after I was a home. I was right. I was lucky enough to be able to, um, uh, be at my parents' house for, uh, I forget. It was probably like nine months until I got a job and got out of the house after college. And I was just on lynda.com almost full time learning programming. Uh, that's really interesting. It's, um, one of the sort of unofficial themes of this podcast is, uh, talking to people about, um, if they were starting out now would they go to university or would they recommend university for someone who wanted to become a software engineer? Yeah. And you know, I don't have a good answer for that. Um, it'll be a thing. I have a son who's 11 months old. So the question of is college going to be worth it? It's definitely something I've thought about, you know, in the future too, especially that's going to kind of something that might really change. I do feel like university, like that piece of paper that you get at the end of it is really like the entrance um, thing you need, like to get your foot in the door for a lot of companies. So there is that perspective. Um, But in terms of, you know, what you learn there, you know, the value, there's definitely less value in spending that four plus years and that and so much money at a university. Um, But it is also still like the entrance fee to corporate jobs. Yeah, it's a it's a really fascinating issue, uh, particularly important in the United States right now with you know mounting student debt, which is actually becoming a kind of like even a different kind of problem from in the past when it was already a problem. Right. Um, for sure. And I was talking to a friend of mine recently who went to Yale for his undergraduate degree, and he was saying, you know, there there's a whole layer of American society of people who basically like won't talk to you if you didn't go to an Ivy League university. And so right. it, it seems like the Americans in particular present, I mean, there are prestigious universities everywhere. You know, this happens in India as well and in the, and in the United Kingdom and other places, obviously. But um, it seems like there's this interesting choice where it's kind of like all or nothing in a way, right? Like if, if it, it might be worth the couple hundred grand if you get into an Ivy League university uh, ju- just for that calling card for the rest of your life. Uh, right. But yeah, if the you, connections if you, you make. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, you like when, when for example, people are presenting um a slide i've, I've seen this in, in my own past when people are presenting a slide about who the who the team is that you're proposing to put on a project if you're bidding for a contract if there's a bunch of yales and cambridges on there um it just it you're much more likely to win that bid than if you don't have them it's just a really fascinating issue and it's it, what's particularly interesting to me is that it's the relationship between what you learn and what the value is of going to university has actually become bifurcated in a way that it may not have been quite so bifurcated in the past yeah that's interesting i haven't been on that side of the table before to accept a bit really so that's an interesting perspective as well 
Um, I wanted to ask you something that might be kind of related to that issue. So I know that on your, your podcast, you talk about um, labor issues and money. And uh, you mentioned on one of those episodes, I think that uh, the story about, you know, getting the internship and not and discovering that you didn't like working for a big company. What, what, what if you can recall, what was it about the big companyness that didn't jibe with Oof. you? Okay. Um, so two things, partly my fault, partly just big company's fault. Um, I was just completely unmotivated to do anything there. So on my end, I just didn't have the motivation or I didn't see like why this mattered to me. Right. It was kind of like a required step. Uh, it was a required step to graduate. So I did the internship. Um, and within it, on the corporate side, it's just like they, they accepted interns and you could tell interns kind of got foisted on these, um, on these people inside of the internship. So they didn't know what to do with me either. I didn't have work. Um, I ended up with this crazy assignment. I had to go through this huge Excel sheet and like map lines in this Excel sheet and check to see if a directory existed inside of like a, a shared, you know, windows directory, and just say if it existed or not. But it was like thousands of thousands of lines long. So it's just like manual work, um, which I probably should have, you know, the typical programmer thing would be like, oh, I discovered I could do a VB script inside of Excel and write all this stuff. But I didn't do that. I didn't know. Again, not super programmer. <laughs> like, that's not my story. I hear so many people say that. I'm just like, that's not my story at all. Um, but they didn't know what to do with me. And... I wasn't motivated to go out and be like a real go-getter to put more responsibility on my shoulders. And even if I was, I don't know who I would have talked to and like how I would have done that. Um, and, and even then, so, you know, this was a big insurance company. It was like meetings upon meetings and just throwing acronyms around. So it took me like the entire internship to even know what they were talking about. And at the end of it, um, you know, no part of that experience was something I really wanted to dive back into. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, Quite a few people who end up on this podcast have a, a kind of independent streak, um, and one particular feature of it is uh, having control o over what you do, but also a direct relationship between the work you do and the thing that comes out in the end. Yes, for sure. And my focus on trying to work for a smaller company after I learned some programming stuff is definitely... You know, definitely geared towards that. I didn't really have the ambition then to work for myself or, you know, try to find clients or anything. I definitely was on, you know, like monster.com looking for, you know, putting my resume out there when I thought I was ready. But, I, you know, the focus on a smaller company where I could have a more direct, um, you know, where I, where I could have a direct effect on the outcomes of that company was definitely something I had in mind. Uh, yeah, and before we talk a little bit later about uh, your own product and how you got into that that world, um, I wanted to ask you if I, I got this line about HelpSpot from your profile on LeanPub, and I'm not 100% sure it's actually still true. Is that still a product that you're working on? Yeah, definitely. Uh, at Userscape, we have two products. Um, there used to be another one, but it, it got thrown by the wayside because it just wasn't profitable. But HelpSpot's the main one, which is a customer support application. And the other one we're building is actually out now, but, you know, we're still in early stages of it is thermostat, which is a surveying tool. So it does uh, NPS and CSAT type surveys. And uh, eventually, um, while working for a small company, you started making your own products. Uh, how did you get into that? Yeah. So, okay. So I've only had, what is it? I think I have been programming maybe like 13 years professionally as in for a company. Um, my first job was at a marketing agency in Connecticut. 
where we did a lot of programming, a lot of content management systems, that kind of stuff. And during that, the company was growing. So I was at this weird stage after five or six years of working there where I was kind of like the pseudo manager, kind of a manager in name, but not in title or really money. <laughs> uh, and we had a slow stage during a summer because summers were often slow. And I was able to delegate all the work out, um, as was basically my responsibility at the time, like making sure all the work was getting done and talking to clients and stuff, but not necessarily doing it all myself. But I had a bunch of downtime, so I was learning uh, Laravel, because Laravel was early at that time, or Laravel 4, I believe, and I was kind of hopping on the bandwagon then. And I forget why exactly, but I got this idea in my head that I should, you know, get on Twitter and start blogging and stuff and get some visibility there. And that started working for me. So I really started blogging a lot to kind of digging into the code and uh, teaching that stuff. And along the way, I also started doing, um, well, first of all, that was the start and the origins of the Laravel book because some people were already putting out books in Laravel and the audience in Laravel really seemed geared towards being accepting to that, to really wanting this extra material to learn from to the point of even be willing to paying for it. So I saw some people do books and I was like, oh, I could do that too. And, uh, because I kind of had that downtime, I was able to learn more and figure out what I wanted to write about, um, and, and read what other people were saying too, to kind of teach myself as well. And, um, you eventually, uh, moved into making screencast videos and courses and things like that as well. I was wondering, how, did you, did you do any training or did you teach yourself that much the way you taught yourself how to program? Yeah, that was all painfully self-taught. Um, the, um, how did I get into that? Okay. So the second job where I am still right now, uh, is a even smaller company. So the first company I started was probably like eight people and it probably went up to like 20 something by the time I left. This company has been about five or six people in the five years I've worked there. Um, the owner of Userscape, Ian Lansman is very entrepreneurial and, um, really wants us to be too. Like part of the reason why we began talking is because we both went to a, a Laravel conference and met and, uh, he followed and saw, he followed along online with me and saw what I was blogging about and all that kind of stuff. And eventually we started talking and that led to me working there. Um, and he's very supportive of entrepreneurial efforts, you know, from all of us at Userscape. So some people do Airbnbs, uh, uh, Eric, who I work with does like Laravel news and some other content related stuff as well. We're all kind of like doing side stuff. And, um, kind of before that I started getting into server related things purely because that became an issue in my kind of daily uh, programming life. Like so many times I'd like spend an entire day trying to figure out one small configuration on a server and having no idea what I was doing. Um, but that, from that spawned a newsletter service for hackers where I was writing blog posts for that and basically doing that every week and then putting my own content out there as, th as the content for this newsletter. Um, cause I had signed up for a bunch of newsletters that aggregated stuff and just sent you links every week. And I didn't really like that as much. I didn't look at it really. I clicked the links. So I did one. It was like two articles, two kind of fleshed out articles about how to get something done and sent that in the newsletter. And that format worked really well. I got a lot of signups for that. Um, that morphed into the video site. Um, what did I, so, um, are you familiar with Laracast? Yes. So Laracast came out, uh, and Jeffrey was doing that and he 
well, I basically, I just saw that it was working for him. So I was like, oh, video seems like a really nice format to do too. So like kind of slowly, not definitely not all at once, Service Hacker Hackers turned into a, a website instead of just like this newsletter site. Um, and that website, quote unquote, instead of a blog, I kind of call it a website instead of a blog specifically because it's, it's not really a blog. It's like a website that has a topic kind of like back in the early 2000s where websites existed and they weren't all apps. Um, so, uh, that slowly turned into a place where I just put a lot of content where I was writing to about server stuff and is, you know, not necessarily a newsletter specifically, but now it was like a site with content. Um, and then, uh, Laracast gave me the idea to do screencasts. So I started doing screencasts and then I thought I would actually do like a subscription model, uh, which I tried, but that didn't do too well. And with, between that and a full-time job, it was just like way too much work to pump out that content all the time. So I stopped making a subscription site and made it all free and continued, um, doing the info, info product stuff as well. Um, by that time, I think I'd already done the Service for Hackers book because that was that was before Service for Hackers became like a video site. Um, and I did some videos for the Service for, Hack- Service for Hackers book as well. And that was really where I cut my teeth figuring out how to make uh, videos kind of not terrible. But the first ones were terrible. And then I, you know, spent a lot of time figuring out the audio and how to make the audio not, you know, so, uh, I don't know, terrible. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, well, thanks for that great, great story. Um, uh, it's something that um, took me a long, long time to learn in my life was when you start doing something, you're probably not going to be very good at it. But if you keep at it, you'll get better. Um, uh, I've actually been in- intending to ha- invite you to this podcast for a while. But what inspired the timing here, as you know, was the recent Laracon EU conference, which LeanPub was a humble sponsor of. And I was wondering, you've, you've mentioned it a couple of times, but before I ask you a sort of more specific question, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what Laravel is for those listening who might not be familiar with it. For sure. Laravel is a framework built in PHP. Uh, so the framework meaning just a collection of tools and libraries and stuff like that to make your development life easier. So you don't have to program things like uh, letting a user log in. You don't have to program like the use of templates or... Uh, you know, there's so many things talking to databases, talking to multiple types of databases. There's so many things that go into it. So you have this framework that has all this tooling available to you. And Laravel is one of the, I mean, if it's not the most popular now, it's one of the most popular frameworks from PHP. PHP itself being one of the most, if not the most used language globally. Um, so it has a lot of visibility, high usage. Um, I've had the privilege of twice interviewing Taylor Watwell, the creator and maintainer of Laravel for this podcast. Um, The first time was about five years ago when Laravel 4 was taking off, I believe. Uh, And just recently, I got to ask him what it was like for him watching the Laravel community grow as the maintainer of the project. And as you know, suddenly a keynote speaker at these conferences that grew from, you know, 80 people to 800 people. Um, And so we got the story from his perspective. I was wondering from from your perspective, what was what was it like watching Laravel's popularity grow and then, you know, your opportunity to build products around it? Definitely. I've definitely joked about riding Taylor's coattails to success. (laughs) Uh, Even if a small success is definitely not huge. I still have a full time job, so it's not like I'm making the millions. Um, the, what did I, so I really jumped in when Laravel four was like a beta. It wasn't fully out yet. And I was learning that Laravel, and when it was Laravel three, I, you know, I didn't really know about it. It just never came across my, my 
daily life. So I started learning it and, um, yes, a good question. I don't know when I saw that it was getting really huge. I mean, it was big enough where I decided to write a book about it. Um, but I think, I mean, more so than motivation to get money or anything like that, that was a motivation to just kind of become visible within a, uh, a community because I thought that would lead to better job prospects. Um, because like I said, I was, it was in the slow period of this marketing agency I worked at and I was kind of just getting bored with that. And after six years, that was just kind of ready to move on. Um, and you know, seeing Laravel's trajectory after that was still pretty crazy. And, um, seeing the community grow and so many people make blogs and their own books and everything. And to the point where now it's, it's spread and has even helped other projects. That's been kind of crazy. Um, so if you're familiar with Vue.js, a JavaScript framework, um, Laravel talked about it and started using it because they saw that it was like this nice thing, you know, it worked really well. It was nice and simple. And then that kind of blew up. So to see Laravel grow up to the point where it can also really help push along other projects also, like that was really great. I mean, that's been within the last three, four years instead of, you know, I forget how long it's been since Laravel 4 went out. But, um, you know, that's, that's kind of crazy growth. Um, one of the really interesting things about your story as I was researching for this article is the... Um, the fact that you have so many balls in the air, uh, and it's so it's it seems to me very sort of well thought through. Um, you know, having having your job, finding the right kind of company that lets you be entrepreneurial, and then managing side projects and thinking about you know your own your own financial future and things like that, which you talk about with Daniel on your on your on your podcast. Um, and actually, I should add to in addition to all of the other products you're making, you're now producing content in audio form for podcasts. Um, and you you talk about burnout um, and holidays and you had a really interesting episode where I believe you talked about how you how you can't play video games until you're burned out and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that that I just loved that that story oh man okay uh there's a few things there that are really interesting so first um yeah the video game thing so that's really recent because I always really enjoyed playing video games growing up but in the last I'd say four years um, anytime I play them, I get kind of competitive about it, but I'm not good. <laughs> so <laughs> it ends up being a really frustrating experience. Uh, and I don't know where that came from, but somewhere along the lines, it became like that. Um, but now, I mean, but then also I was always really excited about doing this extra work, like this side hustle type work. Um, and that took over my time to the point where I just didn't want to play video games. It just wasn't on my scope. Um, but then I'd get through, you know, a video series and it would take almost a year to put out and produce and get out there and everything. And after that, I just didn't want to put in that much effort to anything. So I'd get into this period where I just like, didn't want to do a lot of work and played more video games. So then got re-excited about something else and put that out. And that kind of cycles probably still repeating. So I think I'm, I'm sort of back on the upswing right now after, um, after playing video games a bunch and now I'm playing them less and less. Yeah, it's really interesting um, uh, how one, when, you, when you say you're, you get really competitive, are you playing actually live against other people? Yep. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's it's funny. I've got a similar thing, but it'd be like I'll be like that even if I'm just playing, you know, Zelda or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> like as though there's some audience watching and it's easy to it's easy to put that kind of pressure on yourself and stop, stop having fun. Um, every once in a while, I like to ask a sort of selfish question in, in 
podcast interviews. And in one of your uh, Has Opinions podcasts, you started talking a little bit about your opinions on the structure of employment in the United States. Um, and I guess there might have not been time or place within the structure of the podcast for you to really go into that. But I wanted to give you the opportunity here to take a few minutes maybe to share your opinions about, about that issue. Oh, my God. Yes. Where to begin? Um, I think... The biggest thing is healthcare in the United States is kind of messed up in a few ways. One being good healthcare has always been tied to employment and becoming self-employed is a very scary prospect uh, because healthcare has never been great having to purchase it yourself. And then now we have these healthcare markets, which I was excited for initially, but now they're really expensive for what you get. And I, they always really were, and those were problems that could have been solved, but now with the political climate, they're, they're just getting stripped away and made worse. So we're going to be in the situation where healthcare gets worse before it gets better, If assuming it gets better if within my lifetime. Um, so that's a very strong impediment. Impediment? Impediment? Whatever. Imp impediment. Impediment. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's a very <laughs> strong impediment to even wanting to become self-employed if, if that's someone's goal. Um, but even in, if you are not aiming for that goal, it's still, it's still tied to employment. Uh, it's still suboptimal in terms of how much you have to pay and what you get and all the ways insurance companies are able to lobby the government in order to, you know, spend less on people essentially. And then there's the structure of employment where you just have to be at your desk for 40 hours a week, at least during the prime of your life. <laughs> like, uh, I have started calling hours life hours just to like keep in my mind that like the time, the clock is ticking, <laughs> which is kind of grim and probably more stressful than it should be. But it's like just a mental thing, I, I, a mental game I play with myself sometimes, especially when I'm like spinning my wheels on something I'm work and I'm just like so angry that like that's how I'm spending my time, which is not always all the time or anything. But, you know, occasionally that comes up just programming in general. Um, <laughs> you can hear my kid. Might have to yeah. edit that one out. Yeah. <laughs> he just got up. Yeah. Well, actually, on, on that note, um, uh do you have thoughts about remote work as well? I'm sure you do. Yeah. I mean, the upsides vastly outweigh the downsides so far. Uh, I've been doing working remotely for five years, about almost five years. Um, and that's been really great for the most part. Um, I have a son now. He's 11 months old uh, as of this recording. And there's definitely some challenges when you have a child at home, too, because, you know, they're noisy and they don't care if you have work to get done. Um, and uh, my wife is home, but, you know, she needs breaks sometimes. She, you know, has to go make a sandwich for herself at lunch, you know, just whatever. And I'm home, so I take care of him for that she, instead of um, putting him in daycare or anything. Um, I do like that he's, we're actually going to put him in daycare soon. So we get a few hours just like twice a week to not have childcare time. You know what I mean? To get chores done or for me to start recording where there's not noises in the background and everything like that. Um, but overall, I really like that we're both home with him all the time as opposed to shipping him off to daycare for the majority of the week. Um, 
so, you know, that aspect is nice. Having kids is definitely challenging. Um, before I had kids, it was super great because, you know, I just walked into this room. I started working. I went and got lunch. You know, we, me and um, my wife were home. Well, she was working until the kid came along as well. So uh, we both had our jobs, and then we were hanging out at the end of the day. And, you know, it was nice. No commute and uh, the time savings of being able to move. So we actually moved to Texas uh, I told you I grew up in Connecticut. I lived there and up until about four or five years ago, or probably probably three, four years ago, actually. And we moved to Texas for Natalie to be closer to her family and to get a job here in San Antonio. And I could work anywhere because I was working remotely by then. So that was also a really nice aspect. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you um, about your views on maternity and paternity leave. Um, I came across uh, an item in uh, probably the New York Times or something like that recently about how, as part of the debate about things like maternity leave, there were politicians proposing that, okay, fine, let's let's say give women and perhaps men uh, three or four months off, but then they can't retire for three or four months until three or four months later <laughs> right. than you would normally. And there's there's just something like that the flavor of that way of thinking that strike, that's just very striking to me. Uh, and that seems to be part of this kind of, it was once described to me by a, a law professor from the United States who had moved to Canada as a kind of edge in American life. Um, she had had this experience of, you know, being a professor in the United States and then moving to Canada and just noticed that there wasn't this kind of bite in in the students' kind of personalities her speculation was that it was partly because they didn't have to worry about healthcare in their lives. And you didn't, you know, it's not this sort of cliff that you're always worried about falling off of from getting fired and things like that. And anyway, in, in that context, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you think about how maternity leave and things like paternity leave ought to be handled as a matter of policy. Right. Um, I had, uh, well, at Userscape, which I think is a generous policy. Um, the secondary person, so that's me, because my wife would be the primary, gets five weeks off, and that's like a generous policy for a United States company. Um, and that's absolutely crazy. Like that amount of maternity or paternity leave is, is not enough, really. Um, compared, especially compared to other countries that you know give you so much time off, like a year. Um, and like I can see both sides of the argument, right? So if I'm running a company and I have to pay an employee's uh, salary for a year um, for maternity leave, I think is is the case in Canada for that long. Um, you know, that's that's a downer if you're a small company. Um, so I can see that side of the argument too. Uh, for larger companies, I have a little less sympathy for. Uh, but the. Um, you know, personally, from a, the the person who is on leave, that's great. Like, not the ability not having that sucks totally. Um, and more so, I think something irks me about how much control employers have over our lives. Also, um, and that's I think that's maybe the underlying theme between you know the amount of hours we have to spend at our desk a week. Um, kind of trading money for life hours, you know, to get to that concept again. And then um, you don't get much leave, um, you know, as much as really is healthy for, for your family. Um, and vacation time, you know, very, very similar to that. You don't really get much vacation time. You, <laughs> it's kind of crazy to have this set amount of days that you're, that you're counting down from, which is small to begin with, that you're, uh, allowed to work or not work, you know what I mean? For if you're taking vacation time, um, 
like there's some entity in your life telling you what days that you can just not work is, is nuts in a, in a way. Um, and just, you know, that's a small amount of time to begin with in, in U S companies. And, um, if you try to take more off where, you know, your past your vacation days, your past your paid vacation days, your paid vacation days. So in theory, you can take more days off, um, that are not paid, but trying that you get like this blank stare from the HR person. Like, I don't even know if my system can do that. Yeah. Thanks for bringing up the, the issue of control. I hadn't quite put it together, but now, you know, looking back, I can see that, and you know, the things I learned about you from researching this podcast, that yet there is this, um, sense of awareness that you have of, of the amount of control that companies can have in your life if you're living that way. And, you know, one of the preoccupations that I have is not just the, the hours that you need, the, the number of hours that you need to spend at your desk, but the actual hours, the specific hours during the day that you need to be at your desk and the, yeah. the insanity of having, you know, as a society, you know, rush hours at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day and it, like including in the, the language you know i liked i liked uh, life hours uh that that was great uh, and but there's something that's sort of terrible about rush hour um in terms of the wasted time but the rushing the rushing itself um and there's all these these ways that we can often take for granted that actually the structure of normal corporate life is kind of this attack on our well-being yeah absolutely um and rush hour, I mean, commuting also in terms of rush hour, in terms of traffic, but also just the rush hour of when work gets done. Um, and again, that's something like I could see the other side of the equation. Um, so for instance, at Userscape, uh, we all pitch in on customer support and all the other companies need customer support during business hours. So it's completely reasonable for us to have to be at our desks during kind of business hours. Um, Userscape wouldn't work as a company where it was like, these are objectives, get the work done, but you can work any hours you want to get that done. Um, and that setup, you know, could work for a lot of companies, but if you have customers who work business hours and need your help during business hours, then that's, you know, not, not really an option as like from the perspective of the business owner. So there's definitely a tension between the two needs. Um, and you know, that's why it's kind of a hard problem. Uh, what do you see? Uh, thanks for that great answer and for seeing the other side of things. Um, uh, I was wondering what you think. I did my last question on this topic is: Do you think that remote work is going to be something that's more popular in the future? With you know, communications technology being kind of seamless now in a way that it wasn't until pretty recently. Yeah, and I mean, I hope I certainly hope so. There, you know. Uh, <laughs> The downsides of not having employees or colleagues is the better word. Um, the downside of not having colleagues around is is a real thing too. Because at work you make friends. Um, I mean, sort of because you have to. That's another control thing. Because those are the people you spend your time with. But then also, you know, there's. I think there's actually uh, a legitimate argument to be made about the value of the serendipitous stuff that happens when you just kind of shoot the shit with uh, with other friends or other colleagues at work. Um, and just the natural progression of, of what can happen at work as the result of that. Um, but the upsides of working from home are, are really great too. Just being home, being near your kitchen. Um, I can walk to the next room and take care of my kid for a little while while Natalie's off doing something or just because I want to, um, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. You know, that the upsides there are really great. Um, I think it should grow. Um, you know, it could definitely help in terms of, um, you know, not having to be located near your job. So that means you don't have to move into the city that's expensive or just a lifestyle you don't want. 
Um, you could live in a much cheaper area and get paid more. Um, although I think companies will be wise to that and, and pay you depending on your area where you're located also, not necessarily just what they would pay any employee like who lives like you know geographically close to them. But who knows? Uh, that depends on the company and all that kind of stuff too. Um, but you know, employers also have a good reason to like it in terms of the pool of people available to them. Like if I'm in Silicon Valley, I don't want to spend $200,000 on, uh, you know, per 200,000 and then plus, you know, the extra one third of that. So we'll call it like 250 or yeah, 250, whatever thousand dollars, because you also have to provide benefits and all that stuff to, you know, each developer, if, if someone could have a much better lifestyle, uh, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, $150,000, you know, living somewhere else. Uh, moving on to the next part of the interview. Um, I'd like to talk about your books and some of your products. Um, implementing Laravel was a pretty popular book, uh, and it was translated into a number of other languages. And I actually wanted to ask you about how that came about. Yeah. People just email me and ask if they could. Um, lean pub is a good resource for that because you can split the profits, uh, by, by the co-authors. So you make a new book and add them as a co-author and then split, you know, whatever makes sense for that. And they do the work of translating it, which is nice. Um, the downside is, is it gets out of date. So if I've, um, not, I haven't really touched the implementing Laravel book in a while, but the service for hackers book, I update every two years to keep up with, um, new server versions. And the, I think there's one or two translations of that and they have fell behind because the authors, you know, forget that, you know, four years ago they did a translation for a book. Yeah. Uh, actually I wanted to ask you about speaking of keeping things up to date. Um, did you, did you write either of those books implementing Laravel and service for hackers in progress? I mean, I guess if, if service for hackers is being constantly updated, it's kind of a constantly in progress book. But did you publish them chapter by chapter, or did you publish them kind of the first version all at once? No. Um, and you know what? If I was going to do it again, maybe I would do chapter to chapter just because my own um, marketing strategies have changed over the years. So implementing Laravel is my very first dive into anything, really, kind of like getting the public eye, so to speak, uh, or putting a product out there, I guess would be the better way to word that. And, um, I was, I mean, I'm just lucky that it did well. I think I kind of got in early with the Laravel audience, so it, it would do well because it was early and I had already done some blogging. So I had a little bit of an audience from that kind of stuff. Um, and it did well enough for me to also have a very positive experience from it. So I wanted to do it again and, you know, I knew that I could, so it's kind of like a, a boost there knowing that I could, I have accomplished this before and could do it again. And um, for your first book, did you hire copy editors or anything like that? Or did you, you know, dive in based on your experience blogging and, and just writing generally? Yeah, it was just my experience and all the typos are mine. <laughs> I'm sure there are still tons in there. <laughs> well, on that, on that note, actually, for Servers for Hackers, I believe you set up a GitHub repo for, for feedback. Uh, how, how has that experience been? That's actually been pretty good. Um, you know, my audience are mostly developers, so they're used to that workflow, used to dealing with GitHub. So just to head into GitHub and say on this page, there's this typo. It's been a really nice process. Um, so I just, you know, you know, I treat it like a code project. I say, this is updated. You can't see the update because I don't have the book in, the, in a public repository. But, um, you know, it's updated. And the next time I do an update on LeanPub, you'll get an email about it and I'll include that update. So that, that process has been pretty good. Uh, my second last question is, what's your next project that people should be looking out for? 
So I do mostly um, video projects, you know, right? So screencast projects now. And I have my own uh, platform that I just eventually built that, you know, hosts the videos and, and lets people purchase and all that stuff. So on after the service for hackers, which is still on, on LeanPub, I did what, a deployment course and um, a Docker course and a course on scaling Laravel actually is my most recent course. And now the one I'm working on now is going to be kind of a smaller, quicker course, uh, just out of necessity from having a kid and having less time, is going to be about uh, backups in MySQL, the database. Is that uh, mysqlbackups.tv? Sure is, yep. Okay, okay, great. Uh, Thanks for sharing that. Um, My last question is uh, that I always ask of people who are authors on this podcast is, if there's one thing about LeanPub that we could build for you or one thing we could fix... Do you have any idea of something you might ask us for? Good question. I think actually the review process or having people help you with typos and changes and that kind of thing would be a nice thing to build into LeanPub rather than GitHub, just because not everyone has an audience that's familiar with a GitHub or something like that. Um, and, you know, people are always willing to help for better or worse, but mostly for better. People are usually willing to help and point out, you know, issues with the book or um, things they would do differently, something like that. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for that suggestion. We've um, we've heard that a little bit before, um, uh, and it's definitely definitely fostering that interaction between authors and readers, and especially early readers of a book uh, is very important to us because we see it as a kind of a way of improving the book and letting and people love and as you said, people want to help. Uh, and they're the magic of sort of telling an author about a typo and seeing the update with your correction in there, it's actually something that people really yeah, enjoy. Sure. I like yeah. that in terms of kind of a, a marketing strategy as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's great. Um, and yeah, and it's just like good for everybody on all sides, which is one of the reasons it's so nice to be doing that kind of facilitating that kind of thing. Uh, well, thank you very much, Chris, um, for taking the time to do this. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, good luck with all your projects and with, uh, with your, uh, new arrival as well. Hey, thanks. I appreciate it. It was really fun. Thanks.